0: Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dun Laoghaire, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is part two of us talking about... Come Together, You Can't Catch John Lennon, more or less. Uh, In the first part, you might recall, we talked about how John brought this song to the Beatles, recorded it quite quickly, put it out, it became a massive hit, and then it turned into a massive legal headache. And where we left it last week, 1972 was becoming into 1973. And we have what's euphemistically called, if we raise the curtain on, the 1973 settlement, where it all goes away. and This could potentially be our shortest podcast ever.
1: Yes, it's great. Uh, Great. It's the way way legal stuff should work.
0: Right. So Um, um,
1: what what happens? Well, uh, in the back end of 1973, the parties are gearing up for a trial. Uh, It's going to be heard in the New York Federal District Court in front of uh, a judge called Thomas Greaser. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I want to say Greaser. Mm -hmm. I want to say Greaser. (laughs) Uh, Greaser, yeah. Greaser, yeah. Greaser uh in a in a nineteen fifties way. But uh so we remember that name, uh Judge Thomas Greason. Remember that okay. name, folks. Uh they're they're gearing up. Uh Levy is all set to call Chuck Berry as a witness. Uh it's uh that would be good. I mean you'd pay money to go to a court to see Chuck Berry on a witness
0: you, you wonder, you know we talked uh last week about you know did John and Chuck discuss it at all when they met in February seventy two at Mike Douglas. At which point is Chuck brought in or put on the hook for this, you know? So if Levy feels he can use Chuck as his, uh, in his defense, obviously there's still enough good will between Levy and, and Chuck.
1: Well, you've got to wonder what, uh, Chuck Berry would make of all of this or what his, his attitude to all of this would be, because undoubtedly he is one of those artists, those kind of fond finding fathers of rock and roll that were, were terribly ripped off over publishing rights and, uh, Things like that. So, um, uh, you know, eventually he will get these copyrights back. But at this time, as you say, he really doesn't have uh, much skin in the game. He's no I, power. Yeah, he's no power. I, I genuinely, if I had been uh, advising John then, and I would have been saying, let's get Chuck on our side. Um, yeah, you know, to say that he doesn't care and he doesn't hear any similarity. But, uh, but anyway, Levy is 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 gearing up to call Chuck uh, as a witness. The trial is scheduled for the twelfth uh, of October. Um, the judge by all accounts, is tremendously excited to be hearing this big high profile Mm. case. Uh, I I read an article about this and it said uh, he had invited his wife uh, to -hmm. come and sit in on the trial because, you know, it was a big Beatles law case. And uh, then the night before the trial, there is a settlement.
0: Well, such is the will of these kind of things, where they go right up to the wire in order to force a settlement. And yeah. the settlement is on October the eleventh, seventy-three, two days after John Lennon's thirty-third birthday. Yeah, uh, pointedly. So, what is the settlement that they reach?
1: Right. Have you got a pen and paper handy?
0: Well, I do. Well, I do but this this is this this uh, this has ramifications for what John Lennon does for the next couple of years.
1: Yes. Now, bear in mind, you you said in part one, you know, John Lennon needed to have good lawyers around him, and I think he probably has decent lawyers at this stage. You know, we're right at the yeah. door of the court. This is a legal settlement. The lawyers put this together, and all is well. So this is. Sort of this 1973 settlement, let's call it, is the kind of making this litigation go away. Yeah. Uh, so Big Seven agreed to withdraw the complaint in exchange for John's undertaking that his next album would contain uh, him singing uh, renditions of You Can't Catch Me and two other songs for which Big Seven held the copyright. And it was entirely up to John what those Uh, would be. Mm -hmm. These were pencilled in as Angel Baby by Rosie and the Originals and Yaya by Lee Dorsey, both of which had hit the top 10 in 1961. Uh, But Lennon had the right to uh, change his mind about those as long as he was recording two other songs uh, for which Big Seven held the copyright. And...
0: Well, before we get to the and, because the and is crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. But... That seems reasonable. Big seven will go away. John says, I'll record three of your songs on an album. Ooh, and, and he also says, it'll be my next album. Yes. So remember that I'll record three big seven copyrights on my next album. Next is the important bit. Yeah. And, um, and big seven think, okay, you know, that'll, that'll give us a bit of a payday and it makes big seven go away. And, um, you know, I think the general thing is that you know, there's no liability, there's no admission of copyright infringement or anything from, from Come Together. Come Together gets to, as a song, as an entity, gets to ride off into the sunset unharmed. And that would be a reasonable enough settlement. But there's this and, which is the weirdest agreement ever and makes me think that John didn't have good lawyers. So yes. what's the and?
1: Lennon agrees to, quote, use his best efforts to secure the licensing to big seven of three songs from the Apple non-Beatle catalog Mm. currently in print. Uh, So this is essentially um, uh, records by other Apple artists, excluding only those songs composed by John Lennon and Yoko Ono Lennon together, and those songs composed by Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney together. So. Everything else is up for grabs.
0: So a you know a Badfinger song or you know a, a Mary Hopkins song or something. Billy, but Billy Lennon... Preston. Yes, I mean nuts. He, but, so this but... is nuts. So Lennon says, "I'll listen, Big Seven. I'll record three of your songs and I'll find three Apple songs and I'll pull them from the Apple catalog and I'll give them to you and I'll I'll figure. I'll, I, but it's an Apple thing. So he has to get the Beatles to agree to this.
1: Yes, yes. And this will come back into play. We'll see this because, w- again, in the context here, we're in late 1973. We know from our 1974 uh, episode that will be the year in which the Beatles are sort of finally uh, resolving their issues and bringing the uh, partnership to an end. So this this will come back into play in the context of those uh, dissolution issues. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, and, there's, and there's an agreement that if Lennon doesn't get <laughs> Paul, George and Ringo to agree by December the 31st, 74, Lennon will record two more big seven songs on top of the three big seven songs he's already yes. agreed yes. to do. But it's a, it's, a, it's a really odd, I mean, it's so unsound to say, well, I'll, I'll just go off and try to get this done. It, it, there's no, there's, how do you define something like that? It's really weird
1: uh how do you have how best efforts oh there is so much case law on best efforts reasonable oh, efforts, is all reasonable efforts yes i could i could talk to you the blackpool airport case is the big case there
0: uh <laughs> okay it, it can, can that be summarized in 60 seconds the blackpool well, airport case uh
1: re well reasonable reasonable efforts are you know we know what that means you'll you'll do your best uh you'll you'll yep. make reasonable efforts um best endeavors Best efforts means you will, even if it means acting to your own commercial detriment, Mm -hmm. must try. So, if I, if if in, uh, I won't go through the Blackpool Airport case in detail. But basically, in if if uh, you are to act reasonably or use reasonable efforts, it it it, that does not oblige you to act in your contrary to your own commercial interests. So, if it's going to cost you money or whatever, if you say best endeavours. Even if it costs you money to do that, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to go ahead. So that, that's the broad distinction, but there is a whole raft of, uh, and that's one of those phrases that that people throw into agreements at the very last minute because they can't actually reach an agreement.
0: Right. So um, the main thrust of this is that on John's next album, uh, he will record three songs owned by Big Seven and it, 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 it then brings the question, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the court case or the rock and roll album? Because it just so happens, and John must have known this in the back of his mind, that the rock and roll album project had already begun even before this settlement came into place. So I think John saw in modern parlance a synergy where he could...
1: Uh, absolutely
0: One thing uh, could feed the other.
1: Yes, this, this, this does make sense because he's working on his oldies project. And it's important to remember uh in the con- you know i am very fond of the rock and roll album it comes out in uh, you know eventually in 1975
0: but i am put- not fond of the rock and roll album just just to state must put my flag in the uh, in the earth here fair enough continue proceed <laughs> <laughs>
1: carry on um yeah. uh, objection overruled uh yes yeah, but it's recorded in 1973, and uh, all well, 1973 was all about rock and roll. You know, it was all about a there was a little kind of 50s revival. I know your favorite yeah. band, Shanana. Uh, <laughs> we're still got the worst band ever. Um, yeah, so so uh, there th- 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 there was a kind of 50s nostalgia brewing in 1973, and John is is has decided. Uh, you know, his last two albums, uh, sometime in New York City, Mind Games, have not been particularly well received. He's on a break from everything uh and he decides that this would be a good thing uh just to do some old just to kick back and he talks about you know spending three weeks trying to convince phil Spector that mm-hmm. he, he would like to do this he's happy that phil just takes up the production reins that john is not going to uh interfere he just wants to go in and sing so by it ties in perfectly and by december 1973 he's recorded eight tracks um for for uh, the album, um, mm-hmm. and in fact it's pretty pretty much finishing the whole thing. Um, so he's recorded Boney Maroney, Sweet Little Sixteen, Be My Baby, Just Because, My Baby Left Me, uh, mm-hmm. and then the three big seven songs, Angel Baby, Ya Ya, and You Can't Catch Me. Um, that selection of songs is also quite interesting, apart from the three that he's obliged
0: mm-hmm. to record. Well, should we talk about that now, or should we talk about it when he comes back into court to explain why he's done all of this?
1: Yeah, I, I can talk about it whenever it's...
0: Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, these songs appear uh, on rock and roll, or they appear in this, this time, and there doesn't appear to be any reason as to why they're there. And we'll park that for a moment and come back to that in a bit. Um, But, you know, timeline wise, they have the agreement in October 73, rock and roll is brewing by December 73. He's recorded the three songs. So even though they have been released, he has met that requirement quite quickly um, by recording Angel Baby, yeah, yeah, and you can't catch me. And it was all going so well. And then the album comes out straight away and everything's fine. Isn't that what happens? That's
1: absolutely it. Thank
0: you. No, because Phil Spector's
1: involved. Phil Spector is involved. Uh, nothing about Phil is ever straightforward. And we, we, no. we kind of, one, one day we're going to do a, a day-by-day, R-by-R podcast on the rock and roll sessions. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, we did talk about this on our 1974 episode, so we'll not go into a lot of detail, but there is... Um, uh, John provides a useful summary at one point and he says uh, one day when Phil didn't want to work, he called me and he said the studio had been burnt down. Now, I, in the early days, I didn't know, you know, how far away Phil was. So I said, oh, the studio was burnt down. So anyway, a couple of hours passed. The studio was burnt down. I get somebody to call the studio. It hadn't been burnt down. That was the Sunday. The following Sunday, Phil calls and says, hey, Johnny. I said, oh, hi, Phil. What happened? We're supposed to be doing a session. And he says, I've got the John Dean tapes. I said, what? He said, I've got the John Dean tapes. What he was telling me in his own sweet way was he had my tapes, not the John Dean Watergate tapes. He had my tapes locked in the cellar behind the barbed wire and the Afghan dogs and the machine guns. So that album was stopped in the middle for a year and we had to sue through Capital to get the tapes back off him.
0: What a strange time. I mean, John Dean is a is a, is a, is a curious reference because, yeah. you know, Nixon doesn't resign till August uh, 74, but the whole Watergate Senate hearings were going on between 73 and 74. So, you know, Watergate was the news topic at the time. And it's a time of kind of paranoia, tapes, craziness, people doing odd things. And so Phil Spector is just a man a man of his time. Maybe. He is a
1: man of his time. So yes, yeah, so the, so it it comes out in those hearings that the, the there actually is in Nixon's case a smoking gun because he has thoughtfully recorded everything that was said in the Oval Office and then there's a gap in the tapes. So presumably, what what do you do if you're a congressional investigator? You give all the tapes to Phil Spector, the greatest record producer, <laughs> um, and a stable hand uh, to to work out uh, to to work out what's
0: gone wrong. The, the 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 logic, if one word could be applied to Phil Spector, was that uh, you know he had paid for the sessions out of his own pocket, and he felt that he had front loaded his money into paying the players or the space or whatever. So you know, capital hadn't paid; he had paid. So he felt that he was entitled to to keep the tapes. Uh, himself, yes. Um, but uh, Apple, again, but, but then capital have to try and work to get the tapes back. To get the tapes
1: back, and again, this seems very odd that Spectre mm. has has fronted up the cost of this. I mean, normally it's the record company, you know, traditionally or notoriously, the record company will pay for the record sessions, and then they the artist records something puts it out, thinks they've made a million dollars off the back of the record, and then they suddenly find the record company is recouping the recording costs. So, but in this case, Apple or uh, uh, Capital had only put up a few thousand dollars, and Phil Spector had put up something to the tune of maybe 90000 um, So this dollars. is
0: the end of 73, start of 74. Lennon has recorded the three songs. They're in the bag, but Spectre has taken them away. So this is not, there's a big kind of legal morass where this cannot be the next album or it cannot be finished as the next album because it's not until July 74 that Capital eventually pays Spectre 90 grand and get the tapes back.
1: That's it. That's it. And uh, the judge in in, the 1976 litigation gives a very neat little summary. Uh, And he said, Lennon was working with one Phil Spector, a successful producer of rock and roll records. At some point, these recording sessions terminated because of difficulties created by Spector. This is very... Nice Mm -hmm. legal language. Mm. Uh, The tapes of those songs which had been recorded were appropriated by Spectre. Lennon could make no further progress. It was not until July 1974 that Lennon retrieved the Spectre tapes and capital paid Spectre about $90,000. By this time, Lennon was working on another album entitled Walls and Bridges. He did not resume work on the rock and roll album. He wished to complete Walls and Bridges
0: first. And that's, I mean, the, the mantra that we keep saying is, we, you know, we talk about this on our 1974 episode, but, you know, the 1974, you know, if people have heard that, you know, walls and bridges, it's in what happens in between. So the first half of 1974, Lennon is in L.A. He's kind of realising that his lost weekend maybe might not be the best use of his time. And by the end of 74, he's he's back in New York City more clear headed and you know Walls and Bridges bookends his LA time and his his New York time so to speak so but it comes back to this phrase we mentioned earlier on of his next album so his next album is not going to be this rock and roll album it's suddenly now going to be Walls and Bridges
1: that's it that's it and that is really the key thing next album there was the the, 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 that was built into the the settlement now there is a a big seven track on Walls and
0: Bridges Mm, which is yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, terrible, terrible version. Well,
0: it's just, it's just, I mean, it, it's John and Julian kind of yes. jamming. So teenage Julian. And I wonder, again, was it just expediency where John is like, oh, this is cute. You know, me and Julian jamming and I can take the 60 seconds and keep Morris Levy off my back. Or did he just put it on thinking, oh, it's just nice to have Julian on the album?
1: It's, it seems, I, I think it's just a kind of joke track, mm. kind of little hidden Track, um, but it in in context, it's almost. Um you know, an incitement to Levy. It's almost kind of like thumbing your nose at Levy. Uh, I haven't, I haven't put out my three, so- your three songs, but I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to do it a really terrible version. I, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It still how, pays the bill. Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't matter. Levy is is getting, uh, you, you know, is getting uh, the, the the publishing uh, for yeah. every and and Walls and Bridges is a successful album. I, I, it's not one of my favorite albums, but it's a successful album. It's got number one single, so it is a reasonably successful um, album by mid-period 1970s John Lennon standards.
0: And Maurice Levy, as we've already um, ascertained, a reasonable man, uh, is quite happy that John Lennon's next album is Walls and Bridges. And he feels, that's okay, John. We'll get you the next time. Correct? No, not
1: correct. You're you're leading people astray here. So yeah, Levy is not happy. And uh, he requests a meeting with John Lennon. And again, this is nuts. You don't, yeah. you know, the prin- you, the principles don't kind of get together. And so he requests uh, a meeting with John Lennon, which is held, takes place on the 8th of October 1974 at the Club Cavalero mm-hmm. uh, on East 58th Street in New York. Um, so this is a private club uh, run by uh, Morris Levy's associates.
0: <laughs> Yes. And again, it's the eve of John's 34th birthday. So we're a year on from the uh, agreement made around the time of his 33rd birthday. And as you say, again, it's another example of John not picking up the phone to his lawyer as soon as Levy enters his orbit, which is what he should have done, and saying, yeah, I'll go off and I'll meet Levy. So across the 8th and 9th of October, he has this interaction with Levy that... um, well, I think Levy thinks he's reached an agreement, but legally, it, it, it's not very robust.
1: This is, this is what the subsequent litigation will really turn on. What happened that night? What happened on the 8th of October? What happened the following day on the 9th of October? What was agreed? What wasn't agreed? Um, you know, was there any also, kind what of...
0: was John in a position to agree?
1: And that's the thing. What, what did John think he was agreeing to and what was he legally able to agree to?
0: Yes. Which are, you know, separate things. And, you know, John is a fast talker. You know, we all love John Lennon, but he, he would talk. He would talk maybe without always following through on the consequence of his words. And, you know, he was charming and, you know, could tell people things they wanted to hear or make people think they were hearing
1: Yes. And I I, I think for me, there are parallels here with his initial contact with Alan Klein. You know, know, people do say that Levy was a charming character, you know, and you think over the years, Lennon has just been fascinated by strong characters, you you know. Yeah. Um, And you think, well, the same things that first attracted him to Alan Klein, the kind of tough street talking, the New York thing. Oh, uh, probably played in as well. He's talking to Levy. He's in this this kind of private club, which is, you know, j- like something that w- we will see subsequently in, in The Sopranos. Um, you think that's got to kind of tick some boxes and th- he's going to think, wow, I'm kind of moving in this, uh, I- I- in these circles. And Levy says at one point, he actually arranged to get John membership of this club because he liked it so much so that he wanted to be able to come back there. And you kind of think it's all a, game it's it's he's playing out a kind of character role it's role play
0: yeah so do we need to talk about what the Beatles were able to deliver as per their 20, September 1969 agreement first because that that's the background as to what Levy thinks he's able to do yes so, so famously Alan Klein one of the big things he did deliver that was useful for the Beatles was their September 1969 a revised contract with EMI, which gave them control over, you know, uh, their US releases, you know, uh, that they could standardize international releases. It increased their royalty rate hugely. Um, But there was also things to do with licenses that Apple had versus EMI.
1: Yes. And I absolutely do not purport to understand the absolute (laughs) morass of, of, of agreements uh, here. But there is a summary in 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 the final judgment um which covers some of this so what the background is that capital is the distributor in north america uh, for beatles records records by the beatles and individual members emi is the regular distributor everywhere else so the key point was that levy was claiming that under that uh september 1969 arrangement um, apple not capital but apple had kept the rights to distribute records by mail order in north america and mm-hmm. that both he and lennon knew that and that was the basis that um you know because one of levy's big things was uh, tv mail order sales you know you see the compilations of hits of the 50s and all the rest of it yeah and he was he was making a lot of money doing that so he had that uh infrastructure to market albums Uh, on television and send them out by mail order and his understanding and he said lennon's understanding was that apple had that right in north america not capital
0: now now it does seem odd that john lennon would know the fine print that apple had the rights to mail order records in north america and 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 some of this is thought to be you know not mail order in the way you describe but mail order in this kind of this used to be the Columbia House twelve records for a dollar type yeah, mail order that yeah. they, they had a bit of they had a bit of coverage and supply to that market.
1: That's it. That's it. But there, so there there are exceptions, and again, uh, the exceptions include distribution by mail direct to consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, Levy claimed in his testimony that Alan Klein had told him that to about make, the mail order about the mail Lord order Paul. thing that Capel was not um uh the consent from capital was not required uh to be able to do this and the one of the sources that levy relies on is a published interview with alan klein in the november 1971 issue of playboy if you're flicking through your playboy
0: let me just look on my shelves here yeah i'm just taking it down now yep yep.
1: it's uh volume 18 uh yes number 11 uh page 98. Presumably, much like uh, the London Times in the UK as a publication of record, I think, for the American justice system, Playboy (laughs) Playboy is uh, a publication of record. So um, Alan Klein said, we had them. We worked out a new contract. We got the boys increased royalties. But more important than that, we got them total control and ownership of their product in America. So total control and ownership of their product in America. The most interesting thing is he's referring to them as the boys, which I thought was... uh, A bit of a Brianism. He's uh, echoing Brian, yeah.
0: It it brings back again, because as we tell this story, there's an awful lot of parallels with My Sweet Lord. And one of them is the role of Alan Klein as a broker in all of this, Mm -hmm. and that he's not a totally honest broker. He's not a wise broker in defending for the people he's supposed to represent. And the fact that, you know, Alan Klein is telling Levy that, by the way, there's a loophole here where, you know, we have control over the mail order distribution of records. Is a very odd thing to do. Like, why? Why would he? Why would he give Levy that piece of information?
1: Well, in March nineteen seventy-three, uh, Klein is out, of so, course, and he's looking for vengeance. And well, potentially, I, I think he's kind of constantly just one of those guys that's just looking for the main chance. He's just constantly looking for money. You know, aren't we all?
0: Well, he do, He does seem to be. He does seem to be one of these types who just you know opens his mouth without consequence, and
1: he, you know. <laughs> you know, okay, one, one, one day we're going to do an Alan Klein podcast, and I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Alan Klein. But he uh, he he did a lot of good things. He did a lot of bad things. But everything he did benefited Alan Klein. That's the I think the point. And even when there was this very contentious litigation going on following his. The, uh, removal as manager in in March seventy three. He he keeps up a, a good relationship with Lennon, but mm. you just imagine he's still there. He's still moving in those circles, and he's inserting himself into this negotiation. Um, you know, he's still playing both sides in the same way that he tried to do. We talked about on the My Sweet Lord litigation. He's just constantly playing both sides yeah. in his in his own favor.
0: So we're back in October 74. It's the eve of John Lennon's birthday. John Lennon is meeting with the opposition, Morris Levy, to try and say, look, I'm sorry, my next album was Walls and Bridges. Let's figure something out um, because that's not what I agreed to. A year before. And this kind of kicks into play a sequence of events that happens quite quickly, because I think we can say this is October 74. Rock and Roll, the album, comes out in February 75. So a very, like it's weeks. But what happens in these weeks is kind of crazy. So what happens with the Lennon-Levy meeting?
1: So it seems common ground that the possibility of him completing the rock and roll album and then having it marketed by Levy through TV promotion was discussed. And, you know, we know that John is, you know, a big fan of TV. And he seems to have been interested in this because one of the things he that comes out is they're saying that John felt that the delay in the completion of the album would lead to it not being particularly well received. And, and this is this point that the kind of uh, 50s nostalgia from... 73 had had started to dissipate um he was attracted to the idea of using a different means of production and and distribution so on undoubtedly lennon is expressing some interest uh, Mm -hmm. in in this um he then says to levy well why don't you come by the studio tomorrow and you can hear you know, I want the to prove rock and roll. Yeah, tapes. I want to prove to you essentially that I, I I wasn't acting in bad faith. I did record your uh your your songs. So um again, a completely nuts idea. You know, you invite Levy into the studio. So um October the ninth, there's some kind of listening event. Uh, there's 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 a a birthday bash, yeah. uh, going on for Lennon in the studio. Uh, weirdly, uh, Alan Klein. uh is there uh despite all the lawsuits kind of uh swirling around and john plays the three songs for levy but what he also does is play the rest of the tip. yeah so he he will say well two things one i i didn't want to just kind of say right you've heard your three songs get out but he also wanted to say look this is shockingly bad and this is this is why um you know Spectre had the tapes that was one reason that it didn't come out as my next album but also it's not very good
0: um yeah and so it's 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 very odd to think it's john lennon's 34th birthday levy and klein are in the room they're having this big bash they're playing this tape and the the general consensus is that it's it's not very good but lennon obviously had nothing in his calendar because what happens next happens quite quickly which is five days later Lennon and Levy meet again at the club. Yeah. Um, and Levy, maybe to Molly Coddle Lennon, I think has made him a member at this point or has bought a membership because he likes it. And totally normally, Levy says, I have a farm. Why don't you come up to my farm and record or re-record or you know, add to the recordings for your rock and roll album or rehearse with your, bar- with your band up in my barn? That's on the 14th of October. And he goes up to the barn four days later. Yes, with the band. yes,
1: yes. And the it, it, May Pang has said Lennon did not want to do this. He was determined, went into that meeting on the 14th, determined not to kind of get drawn further in. So she said she got up, you know, went to the powder room, came back and Lennon had agreed to go and rehearse the entire band. So he, he moves... The, the the musicians who include uh Klaus Verman and Jim Keltner and Jesse Ed Davis, the the people who they, they all just head up to this barn.
0: Uh yeah, and you know, you'd think Levy being a bit of an odd character would have bugged the whole thing. It was the time. It was the era of being bugged. It bug. was
1: the era. I, I, if I had been uh, Morris Levy, I'd have had microphones everywhere.
0: <laughs> and I like the fact that you said that Mick Jagger had a name for the album at this
1: point. Yes. Yes. Uh, so if you were uh, also touched in 74, John has worked recording with Mick Jagger. Yeah. Uh, too many cooks and all that stuff. Too many cooks and all that. So Mick Jagger had said, yeah, got, got a uh, old hat.
0: <laughs> old hat is a very <laughs> funny name. Yeah. Um, well, not, it's... it's did, a bit disparaging
1: a bit disparaging it's uh like eric clapton's old sock oh
0: gosh yeah.
1: was, which was suggested by uh, david bowie apparently
0: oh oh yeah that was david bowie's nickname yeah. for eric clapton yeah but
1: he said call your album old sock
0: <laughs> that's a terrible that's the worst album cover ever um so this leads to 2 days in the barn on the 18th and 19th of october it leads to 4 days or five, 5 days in the record plant october the 21st to the 25th where basically Lennon records nine tracks, uh Beep Stand by Me, Ready Teddy, Rip It Up, Ain't That A Shame. Do you want to dance? Slip and slide Peggy Sue, bring it home to me, uh, semi Some love, and yeah, yeah. So these are all kind of re-recorded across these five days. So from it, it's it's ridiculous that he meets Levy on the eighth of October in this club, and then by the 25th of October, he's coming out of the record plant and he's recorded all of these songs again, ready to ready to go.
1: Absolutely. Now, what, what you have to remember is that he's working with the same band and the same musicians that he's just finished uh, recording Walls and Bridges. So he's got a kind of crack band. These are all yeah. rock and roll standards, and they just kind of slot very neatly into in, into doing this.
0: So Lennon records all these songs in the record plant, has rough mixes done of the the sessions, has them all on a tape. And of course, the sensible thing to do is to, you know, pass this tape on to morris levy just to have a listen to say yeah this is where we're going with this you know this, these rough mixes you know nothing nothing bad can come of passing him that rough tape
1: no, no when you say sensible you know you're using that word in entirely the wrong sense there um so oh. yeah he, he he gives him this tape no it's 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 a it's a it's a kind of listening tape it's a seven and a half inch uh tape you know the the, the would have been recorded originally on maybe uh, I think it's 15 inch tape Mm -hmm. so it's not it's not you know it's not broadcast uh, uh, quality but he gives all of this and it's a it's it's a kind of yeah rough rough
0: and I think it's Lennon's trusting nature to say look I am doing the work here's the work here's where we're going we're getting out the other side that's fine what could possibly go wrong so I think why don't we just take a little break because everything's going so well perfect back in a bit end of part one intermission End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So it's mid-November 74. Morris Levy has a rough mix, just for his own personal use. He's not going to do anything with that, just so we can listen to the rock and roll record. And as we've said, all this crazy stuff happens towards the end of 1974. We, we, we've we talked about this before, but um, something we didn't mention in the 74 episode is, uh, but we've talked about it in our Sergeant Pepper episode, is that uh, the Broadway opening of Sergeant Pepper, the musical, happens in November 74. And it's possible that John was there and Paul was there and Morris Levy were there at various nights, potentially.
1: Levy's lawyer recounts the fact that John was there, Paul was there, Levy was there, Klein was there, all mm. kind of separately. And the lawyer kind of recounts, you know, people nodding across the foyer yeah, at each other. You know, all these people who are engaged in 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 litigation and business meetings all turn up at the one, uh, at at the one event. Yeah.
0: So, what obviously is going to happen is that you know. Levy has this tape and thinks he has the rights to put out a John Lennon mail order album. And what John Lennon doesn't perhaps realise or appreciate is that, you know, he is signed to EMI. He doesn't have the right to make that decision to, to basically record an album and pass the tapes onto another label. That's not how recording contracts work. So, but, but Levy is, is, is going to proceed in this direction that he's going to get his mail order album.
1: Yes, and I think this is one of the things that's very evident, is that, that Lennon is kind of t- treating this quite casually, whereas Levy is beavering away in the background, pressing on. So he meets with a guy called Harold Sider, who uh, used to be one of Klein's sidekicks, um, but had left Klein's em- employee uh, shortly before, I think, Klein uh, w- w- was... was, was parting company with the Beatles. So Harold Sider is now working for Lennon and um, Levy meets with him and says, you know, you've got to go and speak to EMI. You've got Mm -hmm. to get the permissions that are necessary. And there does seem to have been a discussion about what Levy's costs would be in producing the record and promoting the record, uh, what would be available for Levy's profit, Lennon's royalty rate, all the rest of it. So there is a discussion going on at this stage, um, ostensibly by one of Lennon's representatives, but it's all very casual at this point also in november we're obviously leading up to the beatles dissolution uh, papers being signed and if you remember from the 1974 episode november the 19th is the big day this is george's Madison square gardens concert george and paul are in the hotel room
0: yeah, that, that footage comes from. Where footage, the that, you know, there
1: are lots of kind of other Neil Aspinall is in there. There's lots of other people in that room representing everybody. John sends his balloon along saying, listen to this balloon and doesn't doesn't <laughs> show up.
0: George is playing uh, his two gigs at Madison Square Garden. Uh, then a week later for Thanksgiving, it's the famous John Lennon turns up with Elton John at Thanksgiving yep. in Madison yep. Square Garden. He reconnects with uh, Yoko afterwards uh, to some degree. But to by some, Christmas... To some degree. To some degree, because at Christmas, he's still on holidays with Maypang in Disneyland, where he famously, apparently, possibly signs the, the Beatles' dissolution papers.
1: Yes, and they were Levy's guests... Yeah, so
0: they're so 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 again this is circular. Ten years earlier they're in Florida in Levy's swimming pool. Ten years later, Lennon is in Florida, Levy's guest again. And um, you know, Levy is uh, still pursuing this rock and roll album, but he's, he's not going near EMI. He's just doing his own shady. He is. He's,
1: he's, he's still in contact with this guy, Harold Sider. And he's still saying, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, but there are no conversations taking place between Sider uh, and, and uh, EMI or capital at this stage that, that, that he won't actually start to action this until 1975. And you do get the sense of there being kind of like two trains running at different speeds. So, Hmm. uh, you know, Levy is just, Full steam ahead. He wants uh, this done. He is whining and dining John Lennon. He's giving him hospitality at Disney. You, you, have got to think. Well, was John just kind of casual? You know, I suppose since 1963, people just give them things. They just you get free yeah. hotels. You get the use of the swimming pool. There was no quid pro quo for using Levy's swimming pool in 1964. And uh, it's it's it gives you, I think, a little bit of an insight into just the way Lennon was living his life at that stage.
0: But finally, you get to the last day, uh, the 31st of December, 1974, which should have been a nice relaxing day. But if, if, if people have been paying attention, a little bomb goes off on the last day of 1974, because that was the day that John Lennon had, had agreed with his best efforts to hand over some Apple songs to Levy for no particular reason, which he had no particular right to do. And he offered yeah. Levy songs like, those were the days, Carolina on my mind, come and get it, and Levy turns them all down. And so
1: <laughs> yeah, he, he turns them all down. So, so yeah, on that last day uh, of 74, his lawyers, right, uh, sort of saying, right, this is we're going ahead with the second phase of that settlement from October 73. So one of the important things there is that Lennon's lawyers at least are acting on the basis that that 1973 settlement is still in place. So yeah. There's two. There were two. The two two kind of heads to that settlement. The first was to record on the next album, and uh, then to 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 do this with the uh, uh, with these Apple songs.
0: But then there's this unofficial 1974 agreement, which the parties are kind of like Lennon and Levy are just doing their own thing.
1: That's it. And this is where all of the all of the the the, the argument will come. Was there actually an agreement? You know, a, a verbal agreement. And uh, you know, people joke about oh, you know, an oral contract or a verbal agreement isn't worth the paper it's written on, you can certainly have an enforceable Mm. oral agreement. And um, that really is what it comes down to. But that issue around the Apple songs actually was one of the points that was being discussed in the run-up to the dissolution uh, papers for the Beatles. So apparently this was raised, you know, well, we have agreed to do this. So we've got to build this into the Beatles dissolution papers. And apparently George put his foot down, um, Mm -hmm. uh, which I only read this last night. He apparently uh, put his foot down and said, you will not transfer any of my Apple artists, Doris Troy, Billy Preston. So he puts his foot down and says, so that's why you've got, these are are, uh, essentially Paul's Artists, those were the days Mary Hopkins, Carolina, my mind that he, yeah, Paul, come and get it. So, George is saying, Keep me out of it, keep my guys out of it. Harry Krishna. Krishna,
0: yeah, <laughs> if they stay, stay on them, the label, stay on the label, Harry, <laughs> stay on the label, Harry Krishna. Um. It's yes, so it's 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 mad. It's mad that Lenin is flying blind. That it's so ad hoc. That he's got one agreement in October seventy three, but he's going off an oral agreement in October seventy four. You know, Klein can't really be trusted in all this. He's playing both sides. Um, and Levy kind of shows his hand in January seventy five because he 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 then right puts in writing. Actually, I have this oral agreement from October seventy four, which is going to kind of supersede. What I'd agreed in writing a year earlier and I'm going to put out a Lenin record. And he shows his hand and says, I'm going to do this by television advertising. I'm going to put out. And he That's the first time I think that he expresses it to the outer world that this is about to happen.
1: That's it. So that's on the 9th of January. They, they write on these terms. So you're, you're right. This is this is this is where anybody looking at this will see, OK, these two trains that have been running in parallel are about to hit each other. This is this is the, there's there's a there's a crash coming.
0: Now, parallel to this, though, John is putting together a rock and roll album for Capital. So as in John's mind, I don't know if he really understands that two albums are about to come out, because in John's mind, he is putting together the cover for the rock and roll album, as is, as we all know it today. And, you know, he's meeting with the Capital Art Department and he's trying to put together a, a nice cover. And it's the cover of rock and roll. It's, it's, it's unusual that it's so. What's the word? Retrospective, really.
1: Yeah, um, it's a it's a Jurgen Vollmer photograph uh, taken in Hamburg in, in that sort of famous shot in in the doorway, and then Capital uh, their art department get um, a sort of a neon sign um, above it, and uh, there's a kind of blurred figures walking through it. And for years, I didn't realize that was the other Beatles at the That's time. That's the
0: Beatles. The Beatles yeah. are on the cover of Rock and Roll, which is a it's kind of nice, really, that yes, they're there. Yeah. But yeah. they are the, um, the other guys
1: but there's a kind of history of you know there's the girl at the back of Abbey Road is kind of blurred walking across you just get the blue miniskirt or there's that yeah. Neil Young after the gold rush you get like a little old lady walking past and so this is yeah. the thing at the time a bit of a trope at the time to have kind of figures walking uh, Have you
0: seen the full after the gold rush yes. picture? Yes <laughs> Graham Nash is in it
1: <laughs> Yeah 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 <laughs> Um, so yeah, so so this is a this is a photograph that Jürgen Vollmer took. He was paid five hundred dollars uh, in nineteen seventy four. And if you remember, we talked in nineteen seventy four episode about the Beatles Fest. Yes. So this was May Pang bought that photograph, bought a copy of that photograph for John um, at that um, Beatles <laughs> and that's so what it was in his mind. And um, I, I looked up some information about Jürgen Vollmer. He is eighty two years old. Uh, Mm -hmm. as of the date of recording. He was one of the Astrid-Clois-Exes, you know, the Exes axis. Um, And he was at the Hamburg School of Fashion, and he took almost as many iconic photographs as Astrid. There's a very, you know that photograph where you can see George, John, and Paul sort of sideways on, on stage, where they're all sort of slightly angled? It it turns up on the Hamburg uh, Star Club bootlegs. He took that. A couple of books, Beatles in Hamburg, very hard to find copy uh, 1978 i think it came out but uh photographs so very very influential but not as well known um as astrid and
0: another suggestion at the time was uh john was going to do a parody of elvis's 50 million elvis fans can't be wrong with his own head that's a that's a cover that's been parodied a lot that would have been terrible that would have been terrible. It's a joke that was subsequently used on compilations by The Fall and Bon Jovi, which is not a duets album. They're two separate albums.
1: So <laughs> disappointed to learn that uh, they hadn't done a duets
0: album. And living on a prayer, ah, uh, would be what they'd be called. Anyway, so so, so John is putting together a legitimate capital rock and roll record. Um, so, But Levy is, is is eventually told at the end of January, you, you know, in an amusingly way, you can't do that. Oh, see what you did there. See, see what I did there? It was building up to that joke. <laughs> oh, right. sorry.
1: I, I, I didn't give you enough space for that joke to bring
0: ah, out, is, You uh... can't do that. So so, so this chap, Cedar, Cedar, tells Levy that, you know, you can't do that. You can't distribute a John Lennon album by telemarketing uh, without EMI say-so on that's your own it. volition from a dodgy tape that you were given back in November.
1: Yeah, and that's the end of that.
0: <laughs> no, what happens is, tv ads start to appear
1: (laughs) yes so uh february the 7th he starts running ads for this uh album uh by through his mail order label called adam Eight. uh Mm. adam was adam was his son so uh, um, uh, john lennon sings the great rock and roll hits roots that's uh, runs chips off the tongue (laughs)
0: <laughs> and it's four ninety eight uh, for an LP and five ninety eight for a tape, and it's generally run in the New York Northeast US area. It's yeah. not a national campaign, and you know nothing. Whatever cards he's been playing close to his chest, as soon as that ad goes live, and um, the you know what hits the fan more yeah. or less. Um, so he's he's basically told to stop. Uh, and the ad only runs for a couple of days in, in the it, end.
1: It, it, it does. And Capital kind of really, um, you know, shift up a gear. They they r- release their version of rock and roll on the 15th of February in a direct response. They bring everything forward. Um, usually they would be selling albums at uh, six ninety eight dollars 98 $6.98. They sell this one at $5.98 to compete. Um, they write letters, cease and desist letters to TV and radio stations uh, saying if you... Uh, broadcast this ad. We're, we're going to sue you. This is a bootleg you're advertising. And uh, it, it, essentially the production and distribution of Levy's album uh, comes to a halt. So there are three, not before 3,000 copies have been pressed and about 1,200 have
0: been sold. It's hard to, I mean, I, I was looking on Discogs. You know, if you want to buy a copy of, uh, let's read that title out again, John Lennon sings the great rock and roll hits, colon, roots. Um It's about $75 to $100, but you do have to wonder, you know, there are many, many, many bootlegs of this bootleg out there purporting to be the real thing. It's like stumbling across a butcher cover of yesterday and today. Most of them have been put there by, you know... That they've been printed last week.
1: That that does seem that does seem very cheap, given that there are only supposedly 1,250 1,200, yeah. of these in the world. I, I have a copy of that on CD. Uh it's a terribly garish. They had yeah, CDs in
0: nineteen seventy five? Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the the cover is horrific. It's this it, garish it, yeah. yellow cover with about a nineteen sixty eight, I think, kind of picture yeah, it's, of John it, it, with his I, long hair. I,
1: I think it might be from the rock and roll circus.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that would make um, sense.
1: Era. Um, but it's just the cheapest, tackiest thing. Um, and the CD uh, has faithfully reproduced it in all its
0: terribleness. Awful glory. It's, um, but here's the thing, because uh, you, this wasn't, by any stretch, the end of the affair. Because when the official rock and roll album comes out, uh, it does feature Ya yeah, Ya. Yeah, we'll put a tick beside that. Tick. It does feature You Can't Catch Me. Tick, But it does not feature a third Morris Levy um, uh, copyright, which was the deal. The yes. 1973 deal was three copyrights because Angel Baby had been removed from the final track listing.
1: Yes. And again, this makes no sense to me. Um, you would think they could, you know, they were rattling these songs off at great speed over the course of yeah. a four or five day session. They could very easily have re-recorded Angel Baby or a other uh, Big 7 copyright yeah. But this doesn't even Fulfill the terms of the
0: 1973 By set. only having the Two songs yeah. yeah it's a again If we go back to that 73 settlement there was two parts Record three songs for the next album and Hand over some Apple songs yeah. And he's now recorded two songs for his Next but one album and so You know Morris Levy instead of Jumping on his horse and going off into the sunset Decides more but lawyers More lawyers um and so there is a further this is the real crazy bit of litigation that happens next because this yes. goes from 75 to 77.
1: Yes, this 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 is the big litigation. Um, so uh, in 1975 Levy sues at this time he's asking for 42 million dollars uh for <laughs> breach of the oral agreement that uh, that supposedly was made in the uh, Dodgy Club uh, on the 8th of October.
0: And forty-two million was what he was about to make on that mail-order album. Well, he was clearly, going to sell. Clearly, he was going to sell twenty yeah. million odd copies. Yeah, um, this is this is a version of "I want you know come together, destroyed and blasted into space." Absolutely, uh, opening gambits. Uh, but but Lennon countersues legitimately.
1: He, he does. So for 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 once, uh, Lennon. Uh, kind of goes in, tooled up with uh, lawyers, and he countersues for unauthorized use of his name, his likeness, the recordings, damages to his reputation. Uh, basically because the tapes are poor and the shoddiness of the packaging. And this is this is a an honest to goodness uh, fight.
0: Fight. At this point, it is 1975. John is now John and Yoko. Yoko is pregnant, as in Yoko and Sean. Yeah. And uh, when the trial kicks in full tilt, Yoko is doing her sitting quietly routine again we all love it knitting in the courtroom yeah uh, as this proceeds <laughs> which it, is great
1: it 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 kind of conjures up an image of you know women at the guillotine and the french yeah. revolution
0: and so what because uh, the first trial there, there's a it, it's all a bit strange there's a there's a mistrial or it all sort of rushes through or what happens
1: well if you want me to go through the uh, tedious legal arguments, I'm going to have to start the clock running. And uh, <laughs> No, 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 no. I just
0: need some advice. Some advice. Okay. <laughs> I just need, that's um, all. all. Okay. Well,
1: very, very, yeah. What would you do if it was your dad was being sued? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, Lennon's argument is that the uh, cover photograph is terrible and yeah. uh, one of the the amusing things is that when he turns up in court he has very very short hair so he's had his hair cut you know nice short uh, back and size to be a kind of again i imagine the lawyer said this would be a good idea
0: get your hair yeah. cut
1: and, remember what um,
0: paul did when apple was had the bankruptcy guys in do that.
1: Do that. Do that. Uh, yeah. um, so uh, Levy's lawyer gets, <laughs> gets Lennon on the witness stand and says, you only cut your hair uh, because of this trial and Lennon says, that's rubbish. I cut it every 18 months and everyone, <laughs> including the judge bursts out laughing uh, in an amusing Ali McBeal sort of way.
0: Um, but at one point Levy's lawyer holds up two virgins to say, you know, you don't care about packaging. You don't care about what you look like on the cover. Yes. And the the judge goes a bit nuts.
1: The judge goes completely nuts. Now, this 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 album cover has already been entered in as a potential uh, piece of evidence, so they, he should know this is coming. Um, the judge gets really anno- annoyed. He throws the LP in a bin uh, and then says, "It's a mistrial." This is uh, Judge Lloyd McMahon, um, mm. and he he declares a mistrial, and the whole thing has to be stopped, and they have to bring in a new judge.
0: And who do they get?
1: Judge Thomas Greaser.
0: The- Remember folks, he's the guy who missed out in October 1973. He he missed out on his trial because of the eve of court settlement. So that was so nice. It is nice it he is gets nice. to have he gets to hang out with John for a bit. Um and this is so uh, uh, at which point then does John take the the stand at this point or is that later on?
1: Uh no, it's, he he is he is on the stand when when they produce this album and then there's a mistrial uh is is declared and then they kind of start Again, essentially. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, Klein gives evidence. Uh, yeah. You know, again, this is this is this is court proceedings that you would want to have a front row seat.
0: Um, well, you, you sent me some paperwork from. Uh, what was the book you got it from?
1: Uh, this is called uh, "Baby, You're a Rich Man." And, yes. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it's a very good book, and it kind of covers the you know top ten lawsuits involving the Beatles.
0: <laughs> and Lennon takes the witness stand on January the 20th, uh, 1976. And it's a quite a fascinating um bit of testimony that he gives throughout all of this. Um, you know, for starters, you know, by the time we get to 76, he's, you know, Sean has been born and he is withdrawing slowly from the music business. Um, so he's 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 you know year on year from 73 74 75 76 he's he's moving slowly into a into a you know a, a, a different space and he says a couple of things when he's on this witness stand at this point that are really quite revelatory
1: yes uh it, it's it's a fascinating uh, uh account um so the one of the first things he does is he talks a bit about the the specter sessions and about how bad that is and and then he talks about choosing the various songs that will end up on the uh, on the record and there were some some uh, bits and pieces in in this testimony that I had never heard in interviews um, no never so he he says you know Bebopalula Lula was one of the first songs I ever learned and I actually remember seeing it the day I met Paul McCartney
0: and, and he talks about some of his other songs and the reasons why he chose some of them.
1: Yeah. So Ain't That a Shame. He said, this is the first rock and roll song I ever learned. My mother taught it to me on the banjo before I learned the guitar. Uh, he says, I put Peggy Sue on the album because I used to sing everybody Holly song uh, there was. And Sam Cook's Bring It On Home because that's a song I really wish I'd written it. I love it that much. Um, This is a very kind of poignant thing as well. He does includes a cover of Larry Williams, Boney Maroney, and he says, and the direct quote is, I remember singing it the only time my mother saw me perform before she died.
0: Yeah, and I'd never heard him say that in an interview and to actually read it through court testimony is is quite uh, uh, is, is quite extraordinary. And the other fun uh, bit, I thought, uh, you know, reading this was uh, he's asked, have the Beatles or you as artists ever had what you refer to as dead material? And Lennon says, "Uh, one thing the Beatles and me never like, Lennon confessed, is the idea of having a lot of material that is crummy left in the vaults for when you die in an airplane crash, which is what a lot of rock and roll people do. When they release this material, they put strange people playing on it, which happened to artists such as Buddy Holly. The Beatles may have two tracks that were never released, and one of them is from 1962. I guess he's thinking about one after Nine or, nine or something. And I have one. And there is the Spectre tape, uh, which he's talking about the rock and roll tapes. But he's, he's literally foreshadowing everything that we're buying these days, that he is saying, you know, when I die, I don't want people touching up any of my crummy old bits of recording
1: yeah he actually says i have three that they could release if i died which i would hate to have released
0: free as a bird <laughs> no um, which obviously doesn't exist yet he, he hadn't he hadn't recorded free as a bird yet so he didn't he didn't know what he was talking about obviously um so but it's really 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 you know striking and you know it's it's 1976 as i said where you think he's house husband but he's still involved in all of this kind of stuff he's also involved in his his immigration court work as well at at the same time um so how does all of this what is the final judgment in all of this what happens
1: okay well essentially um just to summarize that judgment he the judge says there was a tentative agreement clearly a tentative agreement for lennon to provide 15 or 16 rock and roll songs in the event that Lennon in fact made a record album for Levy so it's all conditional however the judge finds that Levy has not shown that there was any agreement on the amount or method of calculation of the royalty no contract was made at the October 8th meeting for Lennon and Apple to produce a record for distribution by Levy there was no agreement to abandon the October 1973 settlement and it is unnecessary uh, to describe the various other subjects that were discussed so essentially there was no contract um, uh, between Levy and Lennon but interestingly does say that the uh, 1973 agreement remained in place but there is one really interesting thing Um, in the dissolution agreement uh, with the Beatles which remember wasn't being signed until yep. late, late November, and ultimately John doesn't sign it until, until uh, after Christmas. December, yeah. Yeah. It That agreement actually provided that um, the effective date for the kind of splitting of the income was the 1st of October, 1974. So effectively from the 1st of October, 1974, all of the income, or the income that each of the Beatles made solo would go to the relevant Beatle. Up to that point, all of the income from... You know, All Things Must Pass, Sentimental Journey, Imagine, Band on the Run, all went into Apple and was split four Mm. ways. Why did they choose the 1st of October, 1974? Why did they put that date? Levy's argument was that that date was to allow Lennon to get all of the money from the record that he agreed to give to Levy on the 8th of October. Yeah. And that that was the key date, and you, and the judge said, "I've looked at this. I do not believe that that has been established. That there's a link between the first of October and the eighth of October, and that that's what was in Lennon's mind or his lawyer's mind." But you've got to think, why the first of October? What what was?
0: Well, the only well, it, it could be a could it just be a financial reporting thing because it's the the end of one quarter and the start of an next quarter? That's what I was wondering. You know, something as mundane as that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is curious that technically, financially, the Beatles split on the 1st of October 1974. Um, so what the judge is saying in the final argument is that, you know, October 73 is the bit that's in writing. Yep. October 74 is not in writing. So October 74, you know, at best it was an exploratory meeting and yes. agreement, but nothing was written down. And it's the October 73 thing that is written down that applies, which is I'm recording three songs for my next album, but also I'm giving you some songs from Apple. But obviously, Levy doesn't get the songs from Apple and he only gets the two songs recorded on the album. So, but the judge gives a very, very, very minor trifling financial, uh, you know, agreement to, to, to Levy for that breach of what was agreed in 1973.
1: Yes. So you, you, you remember that John is countersuing. So the judge yeah. hears that. And I mean, effectively what he's saying is uh, there was no agreement in 74 at all. So um, basically he says that Lennon is to pay Levy $6,795 for breach of the 1973 agreement. And that would cover both the not being on his next album, plus yeah. only being, having recorded uh, two out of three songs. songs. Mm. Levy is to pay Lennon $100,000 to compensate for the lost income from rock and roll uh, because Roots is, is competing. Now, there is an appeal on the amount mm-hmm. of damages, and that's ultimately reduced to $50,000. But uh, Levy is also to pay $35,000 in punitive damages for harming Lennon's reputation, and capital uh, get $290,000 in damages. Now, you think, what was Levy looking for originally? $42 million.
0: 42 million, I know. It's, it's I mean, it's very favourable towards John Lennon. It gets yep. him off the hook completely. Yes. And, you know, it, it kind of, you know, reading between the lines, it kind of reads to me like, you know, Lennon is seen as someone who maybe got taken advantage of a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, the judge is saying enough's enough. We're, we're, we're calling this off now. And, you know, by issuing the Roots album, Levy probably did himself the most harm if he hadn't put Roots out and had gone to court as an honest broker saying where are my three songs i haven't had my three songs he might have done better but by putting roots out he shows himself as being yes maybe a bit unethical or you know not really caring about the 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 what was agreed in October 1973, he's just out for short-termism, fast-buckism.
1: I think I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, one fun fact arriving out of the court case is that after the decision is, is delivered, uh, Levy's attorney, William Shirtman goes up to Lennon and asks him to autograph the copy of uh, Two Virgins that the judge threw in the bin. Um, so, and, <laughs> I think Lennon had
0: already been signing stuff for the kids of the lawyers, yes, lawyers already. Yeah, yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Um, so some some statistics, just to put the whole thing in, in context. Yeah. Rock and Roll reaches number six in the UK and in America. It does go gold, over but it took 10 years to go gold, um, to sell half a million copies. It was amongst the lowest selling studio albums of Lennon's career, slightly above the worst one, which was sometime in New York City. So uh, initially, on initial returns, um, Walls and Bridges, which remember, number one single? Uh, yeah. 425,000 copies in in the States. That's Um, a lot. Mind Games, 376,000 copies. Rock and Roll, 342,000 in the States. So not good. Um, Mm. John, his final comment was, it started in 73 with Phil and fell apart. I ended up as part of a mad drunk scene in Los Angeles and I finally finished it off on my own. There were still problems with it up to the minute it came out. I can't begin to say it's just barmy. There is a jinx on that album.
0: Yeah, it's a bit like kind of get back, let it be, trying to do some loose-limbed stuff, and it yeah. just ends up kind of uh, becoming a, a big albatross around his neck. You know, when you take the broad view of something like this, you always have to say who's the big winner, and it's obviously Paul McCartney. Yes, it is. It is Paul <laughs> it
1: McCartney.
0: Is. Uh, yeah, because he he had the publishing for Peggy Sue, uh, which is on the album, so he gets some money out of uh, rock and roll no matter what. That's it.
1: That's it. Uh, <laughs> um um... Levy? Can we talk about Levy?
0: Yeah, so, well, there's, there's a couple of interesting postscripts. One is what happens to Levy and what happens to Chuck Berry's copyrights. Yes.
1: So what happened to Levy? Uh, the Adam 8 name was discontinued and Levy sold the roulette label to Rhino in oh, the yeah. late 80s. So those sort of Rhino uh, issues, um, he was under investigation... By the FBI in the 50s, but in 1986, he was finally indicted for conspiring with a Genovese boss to extort money from a music wholesaler. So there's a nice mafia family connection. <laughs> he was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. But while the case was on appeal, he passed away in 1990 at the age of
0: 62. I think his quote at the time was he said to a friend, oh, this is how I'm going to uh, get get off the rap of going to jail. I'm just going to die, which is kind of amusing. Yeah, so this is Sugar Hill, as in the Sugar Hill Gang and hip hop and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That he was involved in what funding that record label, or he
1: owned that record label. Really? Yes. So we can say you heard it first here that the people who invented rap music were Paul McCartney and Morris Levy.
0: Well, yes, I think there was there was I think there was, a, there was, a, I think there was a, another lady called Sylvia Robinson involved in Sugar Hill, who was the the main driver but I think he yeah he was behind the scenes obviously he already had money invested in in Sugar Hill, which is pretty wild so maybe that's what Paul was talking about when he said come together led to hip-hop I think that's probably exactly what he meant that's probably um the other thing that happened in terms of the actual song you can't catch me and the copyrights of you can't catch me was that Chuck Berry eventually managed to get his copyrights back to him by the end of the 1970s Chuck himself owned his publishing and owned you can't catch me
1: so he gets his copyrights back, which is a good thing. Uh, that's yes. a good thing. Um, what he also got was a lawyer uh, called William Krasilovsky. So yes. Levy's lawyer ends up um, working for Chuck, having met him sort of through this, uh, this case. And um, there's a fascinating postscript.
0: Well, the fascinating postscript is uh, this chap, um, Krasilovsky, is Chuck Berry's lawyer. As we mentioned earlier on, Lee Eastman is the lawyer for a certain Paul McCartney. And what Paul McCartney has spent the 1970s doing is amassing publishing uh, from you know, his favourite artists and the pre-rock and roll era. And uh, Paul has a desire to own Chuck Berry's publishing. Yeah. So what happens?
1: Lee Eastman approaches Krasilovsky and says, uh, you know, we're interested in buying this. Would you like to come for dinner to my house and we can kind of have a chat? And that dinner comes to pass, but the dinner is interrupted by a phone call.
0: Yeah, so 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 he's trying to massage Chuck Berry's lawyer into selling the catalog, and Lee Eastman is called by his client, uh, Paul McCartney, in the middle of this dinner. And is it to discuss the impending purchase of the Chuck Berry catalog, or is there a more pressing matter in play?
1: It is not to discuss uh, the purchase of the catalog. It is to say, I've been arrested and I'm in jail in Japan.
0: I had some dynamite weed in my bag. Yes. I'm terribly sorry. Um,
1: this is this is again You one can of those, catch me. <laughs> you can catch
0: me. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> hey. um, this is another one of those absolutely weird um, coincidences. So the the, yeah. the the day that Paul that Paul's lawyer is speaking to Chuck's lawyer, the, the dinner is interrupted by Paul languishing in a Japanese prison cell.
0: It's amazing how it's all connected, that from Come Together being in the studio to Paul McCartney calling his lawyer, talking to Chuck Berry's lawyer in a Japanese prison cell. It's all wild. And, and of course, the song Come Together, which is why we are talking here today, Stephen, it goes on to a, a great afterlife. I think it's obviously one of the Beatles songs that uh, has endured. Um, it's certainly in terms of modern streaming and Spotify playlists and all the rest, along with the other Abbey Road songs. You know, it's still hugely, hugely popular. Um, you know, John performed it live. Uh, we mentioned in our Sgt. Pepper movie that you know, Aerosmith had a hit with their version of it and their performance of it in, in the Sgt. Pepper movie. Um, and there have been a couple of other versions that we should probably mention before we sign off. Uh, first one is Michael Jackson's version. Yeah. Mm, are you a fan?
1: I'm, I'm not a fan. I went to see that movie in the uh, cinema.
0: You went to see Moonwalker in the cinema. This is this is even, is this in the same cinema where you saw the Sgt. Pepper movie?
1: Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't. Oh, okay. uh, I, I, Did you not I, learn your
0: lesson from seeing it the Sgt. Pepper it movie? Was,
1: it, was, uh, it was a romantic obligation. Um, ah, I see, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: a date flick, is it? Is that what you're um, telling uh, it was me? It a date right. flick, it was a date okay. flick. Um, yeah, the the the. am I right in thinking in the movie he dances with a claymation animal or something? I, to, I, can you remember any I, of that? I, I,
1: I, I remember it being a very long movie.
0: It didn't get a release, Jackson's version, until it got put onto his two CD history compilation in uh, 1995. That's where it first kind of comes out to the, the main world. I, I don't really think it's very good, but what it was notable for at the time was obviously... Jackson had bought the Beatle copyrights yes. and was doing Beatle songs because yeah. he felt he could generate cash for himself by owning Northern songs in the late 80s.
1: And I, I saw a little comment on this and it said it was one of only two songs uh, by other famous artists that Jackson ever recorded. One was Come Together and the other one was Smile, written by Charlie Chaplin. Oh, the Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, yeah. And I thought, uh, yeah, there's a third one. There's, that. there's a
0: third one? Should I know this? Is this a test? I, I think you should a third Michael Jackson cover version
1: by a famous, by a famous
0: artist. Uh, well, go on, tell me girlfriend. Ah, of course, of course, of course. Well, he Jackson, you know, didn't write like he didn't, he didn't write thriller. He didn't write uh, loads of things, So he certainly, you know, uh, could pick a good, a good song. Um, You know, we could probably spend a long time talking about the Michael Jackson, Sean Lennon overlap as well.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's uh, Mm. yes. We just we just direct people to uh, the Claypool Lennon delirium. Oh, yes. Bubbles Burst.
0: Bubbles burst where Noel Fielding plays Michael Jackson in the video. It's quite strange. Uh, is it, but we is might... it
1: Noel Fielding or is it Theresa Villiers' <laughs> former uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland? I, I, I think that's, that's, <laughs> an unanswered, that's an unanswered uh,
0: question. <laughs> um, but the final version, and it might be a, a case of things coming full circle, uh, because as we, we did back in episode one, foreshadowing, he won Mojo Filter that Paul McCartney is one of the and Mojo Filters in 1995 that uh, records a version of Come Together. And this is in September 1995. There's a one-day recording session with the greatest and the good of UK music scene for an album called Help, which is a a charity album for the charity War Child. And in Abbey Road Studio 2, Paul Weller, uh, with uh, a little bit of help from his band, and Noel Gallagher from Oasis, are recording a cover version of Come Together. And who tootles in from around the corner? That'd be Paul. So as you
1: say, uh, it's the greatest and the good, and Noel Gallagher. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so Paul, 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 does he play the piano on that?
0: Well, it seems to me, the way I always read it was, I don't think the intention was that Paul was to be there. Uh, I don't think the day started with Paul being there. And certainly at the time, Stella McCartney uh, was um, hanging out with, um, uh, her name just escapes me, the model lady. Who uh, oh yes, was uh, yes. Uh, was, was Kate, going out with Johnny Tate Moss? Thank Kate Moss. you very much. I just had a bit of a brain fog there.
1: The model lady,
0: the model lady. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, but uh, they were kind of all part of the recording Britpop Noel Gallagher scene and all the rest. And it might have been that Stella McCartney told her dad to get in get on board because this was a happening and it turns out the hell album was a happening it's a it just had a 25th anniversary there and uh, it's an album i'm very fond of but the version of come together is pretty kind of straightforward but the the footage is there you can see the video they're in abbey road paul is there and I I think he just came in and threw in a couple of backing vocals. He wasn't really playing any instruments
1: on it. Oh, right. okay. I thought he I thought he was playing I thought he was playing the piano, but uh he, he might a, have thrown it, on it, a few it's, rough it's, keyboards, but he's a, he's really
0: just an add-on.
1: It's a pretty kind of lumpen version. You know, it's Oasis and Ocean Colour Scene effectively is the yeah, band. Uh, Paul Weller uh, uh, Paul McCartney. You know, was Johnny Depp there? I
0: uh, I, I, th- I think Johnny Depp might have been hanging around somewhere, it, maybe. Certainly Kate Moss was there and as I said Stella was there as well. And you, you know, it's if you if you look at the pictures from the day, there's a picture of the three of them—Weller, McCartney, and Gallagher— uh, together, and Paul is in the middle with his arms around the other two, and the other two are have to have the face on to, yeah. as if to say, "Oh, oh my God, okay. it's Paul McCartney." And if you if you remember your Brit pop history, because some of us lived it, Stephen, um, you know, 1995 is peak, peak, peak Oasis. You know, they are, you know, they their post their what's the story Morning Glory album and. Uh, you know they're the biggest thing in the music scene. They're they're a year off from their big Nebworth gigs, but to actually have you know, Noel Gallagher on a record with Paul McCartney and them hanging out, it's kind of like the fulfilment of of all of this kind of stuff. So it's not a surprise that they're ha- they're they're happy. But you, you look at that picture, the three of them today, and. Today, Noel Gallagher is the age that Paul McCartney was then. Time, eh?
1: Time. It's a funny thing, time.
0: Time, 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 time. So that's the smoke and mojo filters come together. Worth checking out the Help album if you haven't heard it already. There's nice stuff on there from, um, I'm thinking of stuff from Suede. And it's where Radiohead originally recorded the song, Lucky. But I think we're heading off topic, aren't we? I think so. So we've come a long way from John Lennon being in bed with Timmy Leary uh, chewing the fat to ending up in a New York courtroom. Paying Morris Levy six grand after recording a somewhat catastrophic album of rock and roll covers. It's all interconnected. Um, but what do you think, folks? Um, you know, can we send you back to the records? You know, there's a lot of things to, to listen to there and um, come together and the rock and roll album and all the stuff in between. We're available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter at Beatles Pod, uh, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, the website www.nothingisrealpod.com with all our social stuff and all the other things that we've been involved in uh, and on Instagram as well. Uh, You can join us there. But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.